0: Our scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel Samuel chapter 13. Sometime later, David's son Amnon fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, who was also David's son. Amnon was so upset over his half-sister that he made himself sick. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible in Amnon's view to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, Shemiah's son, David's brother, who was a very clever man. Prince, Jonadab said to him, why are you so down morning after morning? Tell me about it. So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Lie down on your bed and pretend to be sick, Jonadab said to him. When your father comes to see you, tell him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so that I can watch and eat from her own hand. So Amnon lay down and pretend to be sick. The king came to see him and Amnon Amnon told the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of heart-shaped cakes in front of me so that I can eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar in the palace, Please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare some food for him. So Tamar went To her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made heart-shaped cakes in front of him, and then cooked them. She took the pan and served Amnon, but he refused to eat. Everyone leave me, Amnon said, so everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom so I can eat from your hand. So Tamar took the heart-shaped cakes she had made and brought them to her brother Amnon in the bedroom. When she served him the food, he grabbed her head and said, Come have sex with me, my sister. But she said to him, No, my brother, don't rape me. Such a thing shouldn't be done in Israel. Don't do this horrible thing. Think about me. Where could I hide my shame? And you, you would become like some fool in Israel. Please, Just talk to the king. He won't keep you from marrying me. But Amnon refused to listen to her. He was stronger than she was, and so he raped her. But then Amnon felt intense hatred for her. In fact, he hated her. His hatred for her was greater than the love he had felt for her. So Amnon told her, get out of here. No, my brother, she said. Sending me away would be worse than the wrong that you have already done. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He summoned his young servant and said, Get this woman out of my presence and lock the door after her. She was wearing a long-sleeved robe because that was what the virgin princess wore as garments, so Amnon's servant put her out and locked the door after her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long-sleeved robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and walked away, crying as she went. Her other brother Absalom said to her, Has your brother Amnon been with you? Keep quiet about it for now, sister. He's your brother. Don't let it bother you. So Tamar, a broken woman, lived in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard about all this, he got very angry, but he refused to punish his son Amnon because he loved him as his oldest child. Absalom never spoke to Amnon, good word or bad, because he hated him for raping his sister Tamar. Two years later, Absalom was shearing sheep at Balhazor near Ephraim, and he invited all the king's sons. Absalom approached the king and said, your servant is shearing sheep. Would the king and his advisers, please join me? But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we shouldn't go at all, or we should be burden, a burden on you. Although Absalom urged him, the king wasn't willing to go, although he gave Absalom a blessing. Then Absalom said, If you won't come, then let my brother Amnon go with us. Why should he go with you, they asked. But Absalom urged him until he sent Amnon and all the other princes. Then Absalom made a banquet fit for a king. Absalom commanded his servants, be on the lookout. When Amnon is happy with wine, I tell you to strike Amnon down. Then kill him. Don't be afraid, because I myself am giving you the order. Be brave and strong men. So Absalom's servants did to Amnon just what he had commanded. Then all the princes got up, jumped onto their mules, and fled. While they were on their way, the report came to David. Absalom has killed all of the princes. Not one remains. The king got up, tore his garments, and lay on the ground. All his servants stood near him, their garments torn as well. But Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea, said, My master shouldn't think that all the young princes have killed have been killed. Only Amnon is dead. This has been Absalom's plan ever since the day Amnon raped his sister Tamar. So don't let this bother you, my master. Don't think that all the princes are dead because only Amnon is dead and Absalom has fled. Just then, the young man on watch looked up and saw many people coming on the road behind him alongside the mountain. Jonadab told the king, Look, the princes are coming, just as I, your servant, said they would. When Jonadab finished speaking, the princes arrived. They broke into loud crying, and the king and his servants cried hard as well. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur. King Talami. <coughs> Excuse me. Emma Hood's son. David mourned for his son for a long time. But Absalom, after fleeing to Geshur, stayed there for three years. Then the king desired to go out after Absalom, faded away because he had gotten over Amnon's death. May the Lord bless our understanding of this reading.
1: Good morning again. So we are in this sermon series about sex and sexuality and relationships and dating. And it's fun to talk about the fun things about sex. Um, but if we are going to be real, we have to talk about the hard things as well. And so join me in prayer as we enter into this holy and healing space. God, be here, moving throughout us and within us. Peek through the cracks of our hearts so that something new might be healed, so that something New might begin to arise within us. Ready our hearts and our minds to receive what it is that you have to say to us today. Amen. Amen. So, about a year and a half ago, I preached a sermon about not allowing your past to define you. As a way to respond, I included these little slips of paper in the worship guides that said, I am not my blank. And at the end of the sermon, I gave some folks some time to think about what harmful identifiers they might need to, um, or behaviors or experiences they wanted to give up or let go of. And then I invited them to write these out onto those blank slips of paper and lay them on the communion table when they came up for communion. I saw a lot of people writing. But there was only one slip of paper left on the table after worship, which is fine. Last Sunday, actually, as I was going through some of the random items that I stick into my Sunday folder, I came across that slip of paper. And it said, I am not my experiences of being raped. As I studied it in prayer, there were a couple of things that I noticed. I noticed how neat the handwriting is, it's not shaky or angry, it's very deliberate. I noticed that it was folded in half, and that the word experience was plural. Now, I don't know who wrote this out, and I, I don't really need to, but I know that statistically this could be about nine or ten women in this room, or one or 10, one or two men as well. I know that for however much this world has progressed, there are some things that tragically remain the same, that Tamar's story from so long ago is someone's story here today. Of all the women, she was the one with the most protection. A beautiful princess of a powerful king of a mighty nation. She was flowering in her beauty, a sight to behold. And so all the more protection she would need. There wasn't a moment when she would be without cover. She could only be with people who were trusted. People that were trusted. Like all of the women of the day, Tamar is defined in relation to her family, her male family members. Sister to Absalom, half-sister to Amnon. Her position was one of both power and precariousness. Absalom was second to the throne, but Amnon was first, and as first, Amnon was groomed from day one to be a man of power, of privilege, of prepared for authority and leadership. He was never told no. He gets what he wants when he wants it. And in a time of militaristic domination in a culture where male voices are the only voices worth being heard in an ethnic system where honor and shame are cultural capital, this is the backdrop of our story today. And so we have Amnon. Some scriptural translation describe him as love-sick. But what he really was was lust-sick, and maybe not even that, but just sort of plain thirsty for the few things that he couldn't have. His friend Jonadab, something like a wingman of sorts, whose interest was to help his powerful friend get what he wanted. Because that's what you do when you are planning for the future and you want access to the throne, right? You help your future king get what he wants. So Jonadab cooks up a scheme and they set their plans in motion. How could Anon get in a room alone with Tamar? Feign illness. Ask for her. But don't just ask for her. Have your father, the king, ask for her. That way, refusing is not an option. And then lie and wait. Now, Tamar is not stupid. We find that out soon enough. And so here's my theory about why I think Jonadab was asking Amnon, told Amnon to ask, have the king ask for her. Tamar can sense something is off. There is no way that Amnon is lusting after her, and she has no idea. Surely he'd tried in the past to do something, get her alone in a room, hand lingering on her back just a little too long. A person who knows that they are vulnerable and on watch has an instinct for these kinds of things. And so she'd probably been successful at slipping away time and again, right? But Jonadab had figured out a way to close the loophole. When the king commands, you obey. And so we see Tamar pulling together these healing ingredients, carefully constructing these these cakes, these heart-shaped cakes, these cakes that were understood to have a kind of enlivening and heartening effect. Tamar, in spite of what might have been her instincts under ordinary circumstances, she comes to Amnon's uh, home, she draws together the ingredients, she kneads and shapes the dough, prepares them perfectly to help nurse her brother back to health. She enters his chambers, and he orders everyone out. Who would refuse an order from the future king? And Maybe she feels a slight scratch in the back of her head. But this is her brother, right? Her brother. One of her protectors. Her brother, someone she had grown up with, had shared memories with, had been raised to respect and honor and even turn to in times of need. If she's not safe here... Where else could she be safe? So she enters his room, and after he orders everyone out, she reaches out to feed him, and he grabs a hold of her hand and makes his intentions plain, have sex with me. And here is where we see that Tamar is more than a beautiful and compassionate princess. She is, throughout this entire sequence, a portrait of courage. She uses intelligence, strength, and soul. First, she uses intelligence. She doesn't scream. She doesn't comply. She reasons with him. She tries to help him see the bigger picture. She appeals to their shared values. Such a, such a thing shouldn't be done in Israel. Don't do this horrible thing. And this word she uses that gets translated as hor- horrible in, um, in Hebrew, nebula, is a word that is a, talking about irreparable social and relational damage. In other words, it will tear the fabric of our family. Still, he forces himself. So then she tries for personal reputation. Think about me. Where could I hide my shame? You will ruin my future. Doesn't that mean something? And not just my future, but your future as well. No one will respect you. Still, he forces himself. She tries protocol the saddest one of them all, because it reveals that she has so very little power in their system. Marry me. Talk to the king. Talk to our father. He won't refuse you. At the very least, do this in the most right way possible. And so Amnon has a choice. But he chooses not to see Tamar through the lens of relationship. He chooses to see his sister as an object. The passage says that he was stronger than she was, which meant she fought him. When intelligence didn't work, she tried for strength, brute strength, but he was stronger. And so, as is the way with people that become objects, as is the way with people who are dominated, Tamar became the object of his hatred. She tries one last time to make it as right as it could possibly be, appealing again to the possibility of marriage. But he's done with her. And ironically, as he throws her out, he locks himself in. Amnon believed the narrative that he was told about himself, heir to a great dynasty, the most powerful man in the land without understanding the foundation upon which this dynasty was built. That this dynasty existed and was strengthened because of God's favor on King David and because of God's, or David's faithfulness to God. Because of their relationship. And so now Tamar has another hard choice to make. She is still in the clothes that symbolize virginity. Other than the servant and Amnon, she could maybe pretend that nothing had happened. In fact, it would be to her benefit if she just kept her mouth shut. She would still maintain her value as a virginal princess, which means she would not only have a future of some kind with the possibility of marriage, but also keep the royal family out of scandal, out of shame. But like I said before, Tamar is a woman of courage. In spite of all of the very good reasons, very logical reasons to keep quiet, she can't. And she doesn't just tell a few trusted people. She goes into full-blown public mourning. She tears the long sleeves of her gown. She puts ashes on her head. She cries as loudly as her throat will allow. No one can ignore what has happened. She has been violated and refuses to comply with a system that would reward her for silence. And when she goes to her brother Absalom, he doesn't hold her. He doesn't weep with her. He tells her to keep silent. And when her father hears what has happened, he doesn't hold her. He doesn't weep with her. He fumes. And the story about Tamar gets left behind, right? It moves on. The structure is set up so that she's at the mercy of men and all of the men, all of them, fail her, and she disappears. What happens when sex, a gift from God, a gift from God, is not experienced as a gift, but as a lever for domination? What happens when kindness and compassion and vulnerability are not assets and attributes, but opportunities for violation? What happens when the very people who are closest to you, the ones who you're supposed to trust the most, betray your deepest sense of security, Of safety, of self. All too often, the response in families, in schools, in churches are not all that different from what Tamar experienced. At best, what a shame. That's not right. Or, I'm so sorry. Most often, though, the response is silence. There's no space to tell the story because the story is too painful for us, right? It's uncomfortable. We just don't know what to do with it. Heads shaking, we apologetically move on, but the fabric has been torn. There's no space for our hurting. There's no space for our violated brothers and sisters, and so they self-silence. The numbers are one out of every six women and 3% of men, but we don't really know what those numbers are because these are the only the ones who actually report, Right? Tamar was a courageous woman, not just because she used her intellect and her strength in the time of assault. She was also courageous, and most courageous, because she refused to be silenced. In the face of all that would have rewarded her for her silence, she chose to make some noise and not allow shame and oppression to deform her. She may have been dominated, but she was not destroyed. If she had said nothing, we would not know her name. If she had said nothing, all of the women in her family and in her world would have been more vulnerable. If she had said nothing, her story would not be told today and women and men in this space would not know that there was a sister in the Bible who stood with courage and demanded dignity no matter what it cost her. If you or someone you know or someone you know of has been a victim of sexual violence, would you raise your hand? Look at all of these hands. That's too many people. If it was just one hand, it would be too many people. This is hard, isn't it? It's hard to hold this space. It's hard to see one another, people that we care about, who are connected to pain like this. But who are we, right, And what is our faith if the gospel that we proclaim, if we can't, if it's not strong enough to create this space, to hold this space for the Tamars among us, and even those among us who maybe even once were Amnon? How do we make a different choice than David? How do we respond not with violent anger like Absalom, but with a righteous anger, a healing anger? anger? How do we, as the hands and feet of Christ, communicate God's deep love, God's restorative grace, God's tender, tender hospitality to those who are rising from the ashes of sexual violence? How do we pursue a different kind of world? So I'm adapting some guidelines from the blogger Black Girl Dangerous, who wrote about how communities can care for one another after violence. And she wasn't talking about sexual violence. She was talking about the aftermath of the violence of this past summer. But they apply pretty closely. So here they are. The first is to build on and affirm our histories. We don't shy away from Tamar's story because it makes us uncomfortable. We tell stories like hers even louder. They remind us that there is space for an unpicture-perfect, picture-imperfect kind of person, a picture-broken kind of person in our space. We share about Tamar because out of the 188 women named in the Bible, compared to over 1,000 men, out of 188 women, her name was included. She was not an unnamed woman. This wasn't a mistake. This is not a mistake. She needs to be remembered. Because her story, her courage, is part of our faith's DNA. It's part of our DNA of how we move forward. So, secondly, we increase physical and emotional safety. This is a very practical kind of um, a very practical kind of guideline. We create space for those among us who have experienced trauma to be cared for, to be loved. For those among us who have never been violated like this, or even more for those who have recovered, like our sister Macy shared about in her testimony about a year ago, and who is now um, a volunteer with the Rape Victim Hotline. She is a resource, a very practical resource that folks can turn to, figure out next steps. But we don't stop there, right? We also make sure our physical spaces, not just our emotional spaces, our physical spaces are places where violation cannot and will not happen. We put systems like our uh, safe sanctuary policies in place so that our kids are protected. We keep an eye out for suspicious behavior, and we care for one another. Thirdly, we build trust, and all of these things are intertwined with one another, right? We be the kind of people who will do the work to build space for mutual trust. Sometimes that looks just like patience, right? Sometimes that looks like taking the risk to be vulnerable, even when you really, really don't want to. Mutual means everyone, all of us, step out in faith and courage and trust to one another and that we honor that trust. Fourthly and finally, we collaborate and we share power and we share choice. Trauma-informed communities collaborate and share power with survivors of violence, survivors who decide what they need to feel cared for. Tamar never asked Absalom to kill Amnon. He just made that decision on his own, and it led to even more violence. So these aren't the only ways to create grace-filled hospitable spaces for those who have experienced trauma, but this is a pretty good place to start. Choosing not to comply with a culture of silence to let Tamar's ripped sleeves and ash-covered head to be seen, allowing her cries to be heard across the span of space and time, this is a good place to start, the right place to start. We strive toward this not because it's easy or even because it's the compassionate thing to do. We do it because this is what you begin to do in order to enact a different Kind of world, the kind of world that God created for wholeness of life. We do it because not only was Tamar left alone and betrayed and still rose to courage so that God could do what God could do and follow the God that we follow. Like Tamar, God knows what it means to be held hostage by a death dealing culture. Like Tamar, our God knows. What it's like to be stripped and abandoned. And like Tamar, our God knows what it is to rise up in courage, in strength, and in new life to tell the story and not pretend it didn't happen. Tamar may have disappeared from the story, but she was not forgotten. We find in just one chapter later, chapter 14, that Absalom names his only daughter after his beloved sister. She may have disappeared but she was not forgotten. And so it is with us who are recovering. For those of us who are holding space for the recovering, we refuse to forget. We remind our broken ones that they are God's beloved no matter what. You are God's beloved no matter what. We don't ignore what has happened, but we create a new way forward. Tamar had too much dignity, too much strength of identity, too much soul to allow this to define herself or her people. And so when she told Absalom that such a thing is not done in Israel, it was not just an argument. It wasn't just an intellectual argument, but it was a reflection of her belief that we were created for more than this, for better than this. We are better than this. Our world was made for better than this. And through Christ, we will be better than this because we are God's beloved no matter what. No matter what. Amen. Let us pray. God, thank you so much that you call us beloved no matter what. No matter whether we are Tamar and even no matter whether we are Amnon or Absalom, or David, that you are somehow in the middle of all of this and you help us to hold this hard space, not just today, but with every day in every relationship because we know that there are many people who have not said a word to anyone. So help us to be places and people of tender hospitality, conduits of your grace and your love, voices saying, you are beloved to others and to ourselves. Amen.